0: We're in a series called Hosea, the end of religion. And if you, um, some of you jumped into being a part of a real life group for the very first time, small groups that meet all over the area. And some of you haven't yet. So right after the service, if you're not yet plugged into one, that's like basically how do you take what's happening on Sunday and give it like mileage into the week. And I wanna encourage you to go out to that board out there that has the large M logo on it. It's got clipboards on it. You can jump into a small group. or if you're someone that says, look, none of those options look good for me, but I have friends. And what I'd love to do, and if you have friends, that's wonderful. If you've got friends, invite a couple of friends that are not plugged into a small group. And we have on another clipboard out there just some questions that go along with the message that are different from the notes that you have if you walked in, but it's up there. And just do a rogue small group. We don't care. We just want to see people get into this on a deeper level. Um, if you're brand new to this, Hosea is a weird, weird book. It's my favorite book of the whole Bible, but it's bizarre because it's, it's got a prophet. A prophet is a person who says the words of God to the people of God. And so God uses these men and women that are prophets and prophetesses in the Old Testament to speak, be his mouthpiece to the, the nation around them. You got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. There was a civil war and they stayed split. And uh, the northern kingdom is the, the, the one that Hosea is talking to. And the thing that God wants to do through Hosea is he doesn't want him just to talk. He wants to do something that everyone will be talking about forever. And so what he does is this. He sets up a situation where he takes the righteous prophet Hosea and says, I want you to go and marry a woman, like a prostitute. So you have a prostitute and a prophet getting married. And that causes people to talk, right? I mean, you don't have to watch Maury Povich, you know, that that sells. People are going to pay attention to that. You're like, what's the deal? And on top of that, she's having kids that aren't even his kids. Like three kids that are with different people. Like, this is messed up. And the whole nation sees it as messed up. And Hosea is like, exactly. That's what God wanted to communicate to you. This is messed up. And you, I want you to see that. And I want you never, ever to forget it. When we get into chapter two, there are people that really have a hard time with the Bible, don't like the Bible, find especially the God of the Old Testament to be this wrathful, angry God. Chapter 2 is one of those chapters that people, they don't like the Bible because of. So we're going to read it. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2 or go to your phone um, and go ahead and find Hosea chapter 2. If you've got a physical Bible, you're probably going to need to look at the table of contents. No shame there. It's, it's, uh, it's buried in the, like, the last three quarters of the Old Testament. But man, I'm telling you. If you love Jesus and you love the New Testament, the vibrancy of the New Testament shines brighter because of stuff that's taking place in this book. Chapter one, we covered last week. It kind of encapsulates the whole story. Chapter two carries that metaphor on of God feeling like, I want you to see that my relationship with you, Israel, is like this messed up relationship between Hosea and Gomer. And if you've ever been someone that's been cheated on or hurt, and you know, the anger and the intensity of emotion, you hear God expressing that in chapter two. It's dark. This is what I call the fierce love of God. And it's, it's pretty brutal. And so we're about to read that. If, so if you could stand for the reading of God's word as we get into Hosea chapter two, starting, and we're gonna start actually in verse two of chapter two. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I'll strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. I'm going to make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show love to her children because they're the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water and my wool and my linen and my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I'm going to block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than I am now. She's not acknowledged that I was the one that gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it's ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I'm going to expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all of her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all of her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I'll make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, so we're in this series, and again, we're calling it the end of religion. Last week, we are, the message was thank God, religion is dead. And this is what we're getting at in this whole thing. I believe that Hosea acts and serves in the Bible as a reset button for God's people. You do not have, as we said last week, you do not have God in eternity past in the book of Genesis chapter one, verse one saying, okay, here's the thing. I've got this amazing religion and I just got to invent some people so that they can join my amazing religion. no. You have the triune God, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Perfect relationship, perfectly glorifying one another, needing nada, nothing. They don't need anything. And God creating humanity, not because God needed something, Not that God needed to have love showed him, but that he wanted to express his love to humanity and have a relationship of love. It was relational from the very beginning. So when you go through the Old Testament and you see stuff that seems like it's a prescription for religion, what you're seeing is God using short-term vehicles to help people get to a place of relationship. And and a lot of the stuff that you see in the Old Testament doesn't translate in the New because that was his intention. This is a short-term vehicle to get people into a relationship. So what we said last week was that it's not like secular culture that's going to kill religion. It's not atheism that's going to kill religion. It's not immorality that's going to kill religion. If you want to know who to thank for killing religion, it's God. You can thank God that religion is dead because it was never his intention from the beginning to have Christianity be just one box of many that people could check like, oh, this makes sense. I've done my research and I'm putting my faith in this one, this religion. No, he desires a relationship. And the sooner that we get to a place of understanding, the better. And in Hosea, it's the, okay, so that this is abundantly clear that none of us ever, ever mistakes this again. I'm going to show you what I mean by relationship. You have a good, faithful husband that's a prophet and you have a prostitute as a wife. And that's what this relationship looks like. Don't ever forget that. And and the the thing that we see in scripture is is we see God intensely responding to the cheating that he sees happening between Israel and God. Okay. Now and as when, when last night at the Saturday service when I read chapter two I got to the end of it and there's a guy. I kid you not he's in the front row, and he's never heard chapter two of Hosea and he was like oh. I'm like I know, it's crazy. Stuff. I mean it's intense, but here's the thing. The truth is, is that the status of the person you offend dictates the intensity of the response. If you are hanging out with your brother and your brother's friends, and your brother says to his friends, "You ugly," you're gonna be like, "Dude, take it down a notch. Come on, man." If you're at Thanksgiving, whole families gathered, same brother looks at your grandma and says, you ugly, what will you do in that moment? You will take his head off. Why? It's not that you should tell anyone, you ugly, but the status of grandma indicates a deeper intensity of the response. If you are someplace, and like um, I was up at Oktoberfest in Plainfield last night, And and there's a bunch of people. Have you ever been in a crowd of a bunch of people? And all of a sudden, like one of the people in the crowd looks at someone and straight punches them in the jaw and says, I'm going to kill you, man. And there's a cop nearby. That cop is going to respond. He's going to restrain you. He's going to bring you over to a curb. Most likely, there's not going to be much more that's going to happen from that if you cool down, right? Take the same dude. And into town comes a sitting president. And this guy sees the sitting president straight, punches him in the jaw and says, I'm going to kill you, dude. What happens to that guy? You don't see him at Christmas, <laughs> right? He's going to prison. Why? It's not like one, one's, Oh, it's okay to punch this guy at Oktoberfest and it's, you know, no, it, it's not like, like one of them is okay and one of them not. They're both not okay. But the status of the person offended dictates the intensity of the response. Cheating, adultery is wrong anytime, anywhere, anyplace. But the reality of this relationship is that the status of the person that we have cheated upon is so significantly more that the intensity is just that. It's more intense. Now, the Bible's word for cheating and adultery is is idolatry. And if you want a good description of idolatry, it's this. Idolatry is taking a good thing, making it the number one thing, which is always a bad thing. Okay, so let's say this together. One, two, three. Taking a good thing, making it the number one thing, which is always a bad thing. And, and Israel was awesome at this. They believed in the one true God, like they should. Yahweh, Yahweh's the one true God. He's our creator, he's our sustainer, we love God. But they've got needs. And one of their needs is crops. And crops for them was basically equivalent to cash. I mean, this is like, this is our income. This is our sustenance. This is how we survive. And we got to have that. And on top of that, they also needed something else. They needed children. Because children was something that was not just like legacy. It wasn't just like, so you have like gifts to buy at Christmas or something like that. For them, children was, was, was these were the people that help us through life. These are the people that are, leave a legacy. If I don't have kids, it seems like the, the, the gods are, are angry or cursing us or something. Really, it's another way of just saying family. And the thing is, is that even though they had God in their life, they were turning to Baal, which was a harvest God. they're like, okay, harvest God. Like, you know, like, look, I believe in God, but <sighs> truth is, I got needs and I've been praying to God and a harvest is still bad. So my neighbors worship in Baal. What's the big deal? I need children. I've been praying to God for it. God's not answering that. What do I do? Ashtoreth is a God that can help me with fertility. I know that because Ed down the street, it's all about Ashtoreth and he's got like dozens of kids. Okay. So this is something that I'm not saying I'm agnostic or atheistic towards God. I'm just saying that this is okay for me to have these in. And God is saying, no, this, this is cheating. I look at this not just as you like having like all these different apps on the phone of your faith. it's that, okay just to have all these dozens of apps. I'm saying that I am the one who has to be at the top. Is family bad? No. But if family is number one, it's bad. If, if, is money bad? No. But if it's number one, it's bad. Now, in our life, we realize that there's a lot of other stuff that we put onto the stack. We've got influence or control, things that we like to be able to pour into as, as being someone who's rising in popularity or whatever. We also have pleasure, things that range from food to alcohol to drugs to sex to whatever, sports, things that we really enjoy. And we also have relationships. Okay, now here's the thing. Which of these is bad? Which one's the bad ones? None of them. These are all created by God. All of these are created by God for us. None of them is bad. What's bad is the order. Whatever you put on the top, whether you know it or not, dictates your decisions and how you value and prioritize everything underneath it every single time. So every one of these can be really, really good, but when we when we actually maximize them for something that is our ultimate, our number one, it always is bad. Um, and so, like honestly, like if if like if is, family isn't bad, but if family is your number one, if this is the thing that's on the top of the list, you will sacrifice to your God of your family every single time. And you'll put your family first, which sounds good and noble. But the problem is that whenever we put anything but God number one, it tends to ruin the very thing that we're valuing, okay? Influence is not bad. But if that's your number one, you become a narcissist. Money is not bad. If money's bad, then Pastor Brent was totally leading us astray in that, that whole like announcement video. Money is not bad. You, you getting a promotion ain't a bad thing at all. But if money is what you're after, There are people that have made their careers their God because it's going to give them financial security. For them, cash is number one. And because of that, they will sacrifice at the feet of their God, their family, their friendships, their pleasure, everything. Everything will bow down to that God. That's their ultimate. Um, Pleasure, same thing. Well, we were, it was so interesting, um, right after the service, and I, 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 was, I said, hey, can I share this and not use any names? He said, no, no, no I want you to use my son's name. I'm like, okay. He said, he said I, I appreciated the boxes, but we're sports. <laughs> was that, is that a landmine? Should I not talk about that? <laughs> Should I not talk about that at home, folks? He said, we're sports. I said, well, that's probably like in pleasure, because that's something that we enjoy. He says, okay, well, that, that makes sense. He said... Let me tell you about why I'm here today. I'm here today because my son, Johnny, told me this past week, dad, we, and his son's like plays football and he's awesome. And he got practice on Wednesday. He says, dad, I, I, love, I love practice. I love football, but Wednesdays are for God. And and Wednesday, I get to come here and be a part of youth group. So what, you know, Wednesday is for, and, and so that was something where, where he, had, he, he recognized that he, he said, dad, we need to get things in right priority. And he said, I felt so convicted by my own kid because I've just been like phoning it in. I've just been like watching sports on Sundays and just chilling. I'm a Christian. I still have God in my life. I'm not saying I'm agnostic or atheistic, but it took my son saying that to make me realize that I've had a misordered life. For me, actually, if you put God higher on this and relationship was the top, this was probably me in high school, okay? Okay. In high school like for me i would say oh i i totally believe in god i'm a christian like i'm a hardcore christian like hardcore i love god but if you actually ask, if you actually investigated my life you would find out that my god ultimately was the relationship that i was in i was in a relationship with a girl named christy and christy was not bad but she was number one which made the relationship bad because when i make a relationship number one everything in your life gets sacrificed at the feet of that God, okay? So for me, my family was sacrificed at that feet. I, my parents didn't see me my senior year. Like they showed up at graduations and said, son, it's been great to see, you, you know, that, that's like, it was a long time where I was basically with who? Christy, I was hanging out with Christy. If I wasn't with Christy, I was with, I was with Christy's family because they seemed like they were way cooler, more fun than my family. And so like, it was like all, all about Christy and all about her family. Because she was number one, I interpreted everything else on this set through the lens of Christy is number one. So if there were things that, that I knew I shouldn't be doing, but because Christy's number one, I, I would serve that relationship first and foremost. Every single time. I invested way too much time in Christy, way too much money. Like every cent that I earned went to paying for dates or gifts just to try to show her how much I love her and way too much physicality. And spoiler alert, it didn't work out. We're no longer together, Christy and I. (laughs) But that's how it happens, man. It's just like, it's so weird. Good things being turned into number one things always, 100% of the time, it's ruinous. It's bad. It's messed up. And so humanity's problem is just that. It's a misordered life. And, and God doesn't like this. In fact, again, God not only looks at it as ruinous for us, but he looks at it ruinous at our relationship. Just I mean, again, look back to what he said in chapter two, verses 13, that, that terrible last passage. He says this, I will punish her for the days she burnt incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot. And so because of the fact that whenever we put anyone or anything but God at the top, that person becomes or thing becomes our God. That's going to be ruinous to us. It's ruinous for our relationship. God intervenes. Every single one of us were created to worship. It just depends who or what we're worshiping. Who or what is number one on the stack of boxes in our life. Now, here's the thing. Because God loves us, he chooses to intervene. and He intervenes in two ways. Yeah, He intervenes in an active and a reactive way. A lot of people don't like the word reactive. And so if that bums you out, just say responsive. But it helps me and my brain remember it better for active and reactive. Think about reactive like a chemical reaction. Um, Active is, is where God in this passage is talking to Israel and saying, you are doing things that are breaking this relationship. And I'm going to step in and actively intervene and stop it. I'm going to stop what's happening because I want to pull you back and get you back to where you should be. And so we see that in verse 7. First off, really quick, um, how many of you uh, parents um, have had a situation where you look at your toddlers once they start moving and realizing that it's dangerous, that they're going places they shouldn't go in your house or near things they shouldn't go near? So what do you do? Yeah, you put up like little fences, barricades, electrical fences, things like that. Yep. Some of you. Yeah, we put barricades too, because we knew that our kids were prone to like go, hey, it's awesome being up on the top floor, but wouldn't it be great to be on the bottom floor and get there in two seconds? And so we had to put up barricades in there. Now, are we oppressive parents because we put up a barricade, a fence blocking the stairs? No. DCFS is not calling me going, you put a fence up? What? No, that's not going to happen. The reason that that we did that is because we love them. Now, it may seem oppressive to them as they see this barricade, but was it wasn't for us because we knew what we were doing. We see that in verse 6. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. This is the, the picture of God blocking goals. If your goals are going to lead to you actually misordering this, God knows that's ruinous. He doesn't want that. And so you will find Israel was finding their goals were blocked. Now, I'm the first to say that everything that we see in the Old Testament towards Israel is not necessarily copy and paste to us today, but some of this might sound familiar to you. This is what was happening with Israel. Their goals were gonna be blocked. Jump on down to verse nine. Uh, Actually, verse seven. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them and not find them. This is the, the, I don't know if you've ever heard the law of diminished returns, but that's basically, if you're someone that is experiencing like, um, you like whether it's a substance or it's alcohol or something where like initially, man, whatever it took to get you high, like if if you've experienced addiction, you understand this. Like, man, the first hit was here. And I was like, it was amazing. But as I went on, what it took to get me back up to here took more and more of the same substance, right? And so it's like, it's like, it's I, the law of diminished returns is to a point where when a person's coming to the end of their addiction, they're realizing, I have to do so much stuff just to get me back to where I was over here because I'm having this diminished reality. We see this in verse seven where we have previous pleasure weakened. The law of diminished returns happens not just with substances, but with idols. With, with things that we make the number one, whatever it is, all of a sudden starts to diminish in its capacity to give me the hit, the fix that it once did. Jump on to nine. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and, I will, and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and linen intended to cover her naked body. And so verse nine is talking about the fact that material possessions are lost. For Israel, God's like, look, I'm, I'm a good father who wants to give you, I want, and, and, and I have given you. In fact, the stuff that you have, that's from me, and you've been misaligning with that and giving other people the credit for it. And, and that's going to be ruinous to you, and so I'm going to take back the material possessions that you currently are enjoying. We continue down to 10. So now I'm going to expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. This is the idea of saying, right now, you've got this phony front that people are like all about you, but it's fake. You know it's fake. They don't. Because I care so much about you, I'm going to remove the thing that's fake and false about you so that the people that you're going after instead of me actually see you for who you are. And that's humiliation. Now, humiliation isn't a good thing unless this is a course correction for Israel to get them to wake up and get out of the fact that they're heading for ruin. Continuing down to 11, I will stop her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, and all appointed festivals. Basically, the, the things that I used to have, the cultural enjoyment that I used to once have, that I used to treasure, they're no longer going to be the vibrant thing that they once were. Man, my family we used to celebrate like this, and I feel like as the years have gone by, it's just gotten dead. This thing, this thing that once was so magical and wonderful is now just like, eh, why is that? And God, for Israel, God is saying, I'm going to cu- basically cease the joy from you filling your life up with things that are s- just taking you away from your ultimate flourishing of who you are. Verse 12, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. Okay, so that's talking about how previous sources of income will dry up. I was able to like rest and find my financial security because like, I had a little bit of thing going here and a little bit of thing going here. And all of a sudden, I'm finding myself diminished in those things. Those things, those things are, are starting to go down or they're starting to be taken away. And, and um, the thing is that when we look at all of this, at this active response of God, some of this, even though this is for Israel, we can like see some reflection in us today. There, there's, some, there's some reflection, some echo for us today. And so when we look at that, we should, we should pay attention to that. Um, one of the things that's the difference though between this and this is, is, is just this active intervention um, would be like, if money for me was the number one and I, I've got this job opportunity and it's going to be amazing. And I mean, it's going to be like financially, it's going to set me on the right path and it's going to be awesome. Now there's nothing wrong with promotions or anything else like that. There's nothing wrong with you earning a lot of money, not a thing. But if God knows that for me, that's going to be ruinous, his active intervention would show up by basically a thorn bush being in the path, the path being blocked to this epic job. And God wouldn't be doing that to punish me. He's doing that to protect me. That's active intervention. Reactive intervention is different. Reactive intervention is um, when like, if I'm like, man, you want to know what's number one in my life? Money, and I don't have it. So I'm going to go and I'm going to hold up Casey's General Store on Mondaman, because they've got several hundreds of dollars in there from people who still pay with cash. So I'm going to go and I'm going to bust in. And I'm going to say, "Give me all your money!" And then they're going to give me all their money. And I'm going to walk out as I'm walking out. I'm going to laugh, ha ha ha, like a good thief would. And then all of a sudden, Manuka PD, woo woo woo, pulls up, and then I get cuffed and I'm arrested. What I can't say at that moment is, "God, why are you punishing me?" Why did you send the police to punish me and arrest me? I can't say that. I'm experiencing the natural ramifications of my stealing, of, 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 of my sin. I'm experiencing the natural ramifications. Now, here's what God does. He is allowing reactive intervention to happen. He will use even that humiliation moment. Did God send the PD to get me? Did he send the cops in? Did he enable Casey's General Store with that silent little button that you see in the movies? Or is God actually responding to the natural ramifications of my bad decisions and using them for me? And here's the thing, whether it's active or reactive intervention, I don't think we're ever going to know in our life what God's using to course correct us, to wake us up that our life is misordered. I don't think we'll ever know for sure, but I can tell you this for sure. Whatever you're experiencing, whether it's active or reactive, if you're experiencing some type of trouble or pain, it's not punishment. Don't ever say, God's punishing me. I'm experiencing this because God's punishing me. You know why you can't say that? And the people in Hosea's time, they could say that. But the reason that we can't say that is because we're this side of the cross. Do you know how much of your punishment Jesus took on the cross? 20%? 65%. 98%. He took 100% of your punishment. You are not being punished. The wrath of God is not pouring on you as a punishment because he took it all. What you are experiencing is perhaps the active or reactive intervention to wake you up, allowing you to experience whatever you're experiencing as a way to get you back into an ordered life that you were created for, that you were designed for. Now, here's the thing. We can recognize that that's true. But what do we do with that? Because when we read this, and we just kind of like read how our life is so misordered, with whatever it is that we've made number one, even the good things that we've made ultimate things, things that God wants to bless us with, but we make it our... our Lower G, God. He doesn't make it super complicated for us. The heavy lifting actually has already been done for us. The Bible's word for what God wants us to do is called repentance. And it sounds super churchy, but the only the real word for that or the better equivalent of what repentance is is it's simply changing my mind. God wants us to look at our life and change our mind on how we have it ordered. And the cool thing is, is that he has made the on-ramp to do that incredibly simple because the heavy lifting of that was done by him. Repentance means to change your mind. Romans two verse four says this, it's God's kindness that leads us to change our mind. Not God's wrath, it could say God's wrath and it would be totally appropriate. It's God's wrath. We should be afraid of God, and we should just get right. We should order our life right because God is such a wrath. That would be, I mean, that would be fair, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say it's God's holiness that leads us to repentance. That would be honestly true. It doesn't say that. It says it's God's what? Kindness. Kindness that leads us to, who are you kind with? Who do you express kindness to even though they've failed you? People that you're in relationship with, that you desire to have a relationship with. It's God's kindness that leads us to change our mind. The Bible talks about another prostitute. This time it was in the New Testament. This is a woman that she, man, um, she, she was so broken up about how her life was misordered so broken up about the failures that she's made in her life that she was so desperate. She crashes a religious leader's party that Jesus was invited to. And she goes into that party and she, she goes in with a plan. She's got this, this um, perfume, super expensive. And the way that in the old school days, like the way that you really showed someone that they were number one is you would take expensive perfume and you would, you would pour it on their feet. And that's what her plan was with Jesus he had said things about how the broken find their wholeness in him, no matter what you've done, that he was going to be the, the solution to your answer. And that, at, that spoke to her on such a huge level that she wanted to go and show him that he was number one. And so she brings in this, this perfume. But have you ever been in a situation that you had something, how it was going to go in your head, but it doesn't go that way in, in reality? And like it just totally like falls apart? That's what happens with her. She walks in and she goes down to his feet to pour this perfume in, but realizing who she's talking to, realizing who's right in front of her and realizing what he's done in her life causes her to have an emotional response where she starts to ugly cry. And as she's crying, the tears are now just like wetting his feet, drenching his feet as she's just sobbing. And in her embarrassment, She realizes that she's making a fool of herself and everyone's staring at her. Jesus is looking right at her, but she's like absolutely humiliated. And in that moment, she takes her hair. Now hair in the first century, that's what a prostitute would use to allure customers. And she takes the thing that she used to use to allure customers and she uses it to wash the tears off of his dirty feet. And then she pours perfume and she continues to wash and kiss his feet. And the other religious leaders in the room look at what's happening and they start to talk amongst themselves. And they say, clearly this guy's not a rabbi, or at least a good one. If he was a good rabbi, he would know what kind of a person that is and what she's done. I don't know if you've ever felt humiliated like you've done stuff that God just can't forgive. That woman did. Jesus turns to them and says, do you guys realize This is this religious, righteous group of people. That the most righteous person in this room is this woman right here. The prostitute was the most righteous because she rightly came and served me, and not a single one of you guys did. You guys are all into yourself and your religious approach. Not one of you has made me number one. One of my favorite songs is a song called The Song of the Harlot by this band um, called The Violet Burning, who played this song about that scene back in the 90s. And at the end of the song, I mean, the whole song is talking about how the, 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 the artist, he's like, my life is just like that woman. I have loved the world. I have misordered my life, in other words. But he gets to the end of the song, and as the music just ramps up, he says, if I could be anyone at all, and he repeats it, if I could be anyone at all, Lord, let me be, the whore that's at your feet. And the harmony in the background raises the song from this worship group and the, the song would repeat over and over again, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're someone far from God, he's calling you to change your mind. He doesn't make the on-ramp difficult, but here's the cool thing. As we see in Hosea chapter two, God walling in the pathways towards ruin with thorn bushes we see in the new testament that god himself took the thorns upon himself the thorn bush was put upon him the wrath of god isn't against us he brings it upon himself the wrath of god is gone the guilt the shame is gone the restoration is now